We take that which is uh, confusing, oftentimes, this whole book of Revelation, and make it simple. Uh, I pray that which is actually pretty simple about the book of Revelation and make it um, clear, make it relevant, uh, convict us where we need to be convicted, open our eyes where they need to be opened. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, I think I've told you a number of times over the years why I preach through books of the Bible. One of the reasons I preach through books of the Bible is because it causes me to address topics and things that I otherwise wouldn't do, that I, that I would frankly much rather avoid. And there's no topic that I avoid more than anything else, especially in the context of preaching, than the, the topic of politics. And in particular, this morning, the topic of government. I mean, who in the world would have chosen to, chew, to, to preach about government from the book of Revelation the weekend after the Democratic and Republican conventions have taken place in our country? I mean, frankly, I, I can't stand the political season, especially uh, as a pastor. You know, because, because on one hand you have people uh, sending me letters and notes and, and actually quite formal things telling me, here's how you can preach about how we can vote for this person or that person. Other people are saying, when are you going to preach against the other person? All of these kinds of things come together. And then, of course, there's all the other forms of media that come at you. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm completely tired of blog posts and things that get sent to me about um, how Christians can talk about politics without getting upset. I think it's impossible to be, to be honest with you. And in fact, you know, my, my, I think the most true thing that I've ever seen, I think I have it, that was ever posted on Facebook was, was this card. It says, I've completely changed my political views due to your multiple Facebook posts. Said no one ever. <laughs> ever. In other words, you have, you have people who are liberal who are every five minutes they're posting something about how evil Mitt Romney is and people who are conservative every five minutes posting something about how evil Barack Obama is. And what both sides miss is how evil government is in and of itself. Does that shock you? I said in the first service, I said my guess is that I was going to offend many of you. My hope is that it was that I offend all of you. I think I, I only offended about 90% of the first service, so I'm going to have to take things up for another level today to keep, keep my game up. You see, when we get into these discussions about government, it's real easy to get sort of myopic and think about just the election that's happening right now in the United States. In fact, you hear people say, this is the most important election in the history of the United States. You know, I can think of at least one other election that was more important. Right? Abraham Lincoln won it. You see, we get pretty wrapped around the axle about how important things are. But when you begin to look at government and you begin to look at the course of history, government has almost always been a very negative thing, especially if you're a Christian. Since the time of Jesus appearing until now, the best estimates say about 70 million Christians have been martyred, have been persecuted or killed simply for the fact that they're Christians. 70 million. 45 million of those of the 70 million were just in the 20th century. And almost 100% of Christians who are martyred for their faith since the time of Jesus till now, just in the 20th century, were martyred by some kind of oppressive state 
It's as simple as that. It's not just because people, their neighbors who were, who were Jewish didn't like them. It almost always, you, you can't kill people by the millions unless the state is behind it. Whether it's China or whether it's communist Russia or whether it's uh, Nazi Germany. And so to become very myopic about our own country and lose sight of what the purpose of government is in the first place and how we're to relate to government in the first place is a pretty dangerous thing. And so as we jump into this text this morning, Revelation 13, I do it in some sense with a little trepidation. On the other hand, you know, I was always taught when in doubt, go ahead and say it. So I'm going to sort of go with that as well. Um, before we jump into the actual text of Revelation 13, let me review a couple of things with you here. Basically, the book of Revelation. The first thing I want to remind you about the whole book of Revelation is that it's about Jesus. If you ask someone on the street who wasn't familiar with the Bible or maybe someone who didn't go to church that much, you said, what's the book of Revelation about? They'd say, oh, it's about the, the end times or it's about the end of the world. And, you know, it's, that's true. On the other hand, Genesis is about the end of the world as well. So is the Exodus and Leviticus. Every book in the Bible is about the end of the world. So where, where's all of this going? But you remember the book of Revelation is about the person and work of Jesus. It's what he accomplished in the past. It's what he will accomplish in the future. And it's what he's accomplishing right now. And so if you try to figure out the book of Revelation outside of understanding the person and work of Jesus, you're going you're gonna to be in error almost every time. In fact, I think every time. The second thing you notice about the book of Revelation is that at some level it's sort of like a manifesto. It was written to seven churches who are really struggling with the Roman Empire, government. The government of the Roman Empire was crushing them. And it was a manifesto to them and ultimately to us in order to, how do you live in that context? How do you relate to government? How do you, what, are you, what are you supposed to do? What does it mean to live as a Christian in this world? And primarily, if you remember over and over again, John says very little about just being good. Just be a good moral person and that's what matters. What he really talks about is bearing witness to the truth of the gospel, bearing witness to the truth of Jesus in spite of what the government might do to you, in spite of what Rome might do to you, in spite of what Egypt might do to you, in spite of what Germany or Russia or the United States for all I know, might do to you. In spite of that, our primary job as Christians is to bear witness to Jesus. But then that also leads to the fact that that's not easy because the book of Revelation is also ultimately about a war. A war between God and Satan. And it's not an equal war, right? It's, it's basically against God and, and someone who's rebelling against him who won't give up, and yet he was completely and utterly crushed. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan lost everything. In other words, he lost the war, and now he just sort of goes around with these little skirmishes and battles. But from now until the time Jesus comes back, it will continue to be a war. And the book of Revelation tells us what does it mean to live like a people on wartime footing rather than a people in peacetime footing. If you're a Christian, you're always at war with at least the devil. And if you remember, that we looked at the last time I was here, we looked at uh, Revelation chapter 12. And the last verse of Revelation chapter 12 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Remember, chapter 12 is basically like this a summary, again, of the person and work of Jesus and a history of the gospel. And how it works is this, is Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, and yet until he returns again to completely finish that, the job of casting him down, he now makes war against the woman and her children. Who is the woman? The woman is the covenant people of God, whether it's in the Old Testament or it's the New Testament. 
and her children are the covenant people, which if you're a Christian, that would be you. So I have good news for you today. There is one out there named Satan, the dragon, that ancient serpent who constantly, consistently, and ultimately lives to bring you down and destroy you. Happy Sunday. Now the question is, how does he do that? And the immediate answer is in chapter 13. Chapter 13 describes how the, the dragon makes war against the woman and her children. He does it through two proxies. We're going to look at one of them this week. We'll look at one next week. And how does he make war? He makes war through this thing called the beast. Who is the beast? Right? Let me read that to you. It says in verse, at the end of verse 12, he says, And I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its, and it, on its horns, and blasphemous names on his head. So the last part of, chapter, of verse 17 is actually should probably go with the first part of 13. The beast, the devil, the dragon is standing on the seashore, and you get this vision of him calling uh, up from the depths this beast, and you can see it slowly rising out of the sea with ten horns and all these things about him. So what do you need to know? Well, there's three things we're going to basically have to know to deal with this creature called the beast. And basically we're going to have to define it, we're going to have to describe it, and really, what's more important is how do you survive it? I mean, we have to define it. Who is, who is the beast? We have to describe him. What does he do? And finally, because he is constantly at war with God's people, we have to talk about how do you survive him? How do, how do you make it through this constant promised attack from him? So let's first look and define him. So let me read it to you again in verse or Verse 2, he says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. So who is the beast? How do you define him? And it's simply this. The beast equals government. Let me take it a step further. The beast is government gone wild. The beast is government gone wild. How do I know that the beast is the government gone wild? Where am I getting this from? By the way, some traditions would say that the beast is the Antichrist, capital A, that there is one person who is the beast and he is the Antichrist. I'm going to give you a different view, but I think I'm going to give you one that's more rooted uh, in the Old Testament. So how do we know the beast is government generally, but government gone wild specifically? Well, first this, in the Old Testament, the book of Job, you actually see two beasts come up. In chapter 13, there are two beasts. Chapter 13, there's a beast from the sea and there's a beast from the land. In the book of Job, what you see God promising to defeat is a beast that rises from the sea and a beast that rises from the land. One is Leviathan, that's the first one, and the second one is Behemoth. And throughout the Old Testament, Leviathan, or the, the ancient sea serpent, is constantly and consistently symbolic of kingdoms that battle against God and his people. That they represent and they, and they battle on behalf of God or, or on behalf of God's enemies against God's people. And it's always governments. It's always kingdoms. It's, always some, it's the state, if you will, to use our modern day lingo. So on one hand, you have the book of Job where you begin to see these, the two ideas of the beast. But then in Daniel 7, you have an even more clear picture. 
If, you re- if, if I read to you without telling you the reference, the book of Revelation, and then read, and ask you, where is that from? Is that from Daniel or is it from Revelation? It would be hard for most people to tell if you weren't that familiar with the Bible, but if you're a little bit familiar. Because the image comes almost directly from Daniel chapter 7, where you see four beasts, right? Leopard, lion, bear, and then one that's sort of undefined but really scary. Those four beasts represent kingdoms or governments. And even when those kingdoms are defeated, the spirit of those kingdoms still lives on to torment and to persecute God's people. So if you make what John's vision is consistent with the Old Testament imagery, it has to do with governments and kingdoms. But it's not just governments and kingdoms, it's governments and kingdoms gone wild. Remember Daniel's context. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chapter 3. What did the state ask them to do? To bow down, worship the king. And they said no, and they took the consequences for it. So it's not uncommon for the state to demand worship in the Old Testament and even throughout human history. And on the other hand, I want to make it clear, because some of you are saying, gosh, is he just going to go on an anti-government rant today? I'm going to be honest with you, I really am. On one hand. On the other hand, If you're going to be consistent, the Bible also has good things to say about government. It doesn't have a lot to say about government, but it has some very important things to say and some very good things to say about government. The most clear teaching on government that we have in the Bible, the purpose of government, is from Romans chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul says that the purpose of government is basically twofold. And it's going to disappoint some of you but twofold, and that he says it's this, the purpose of the government is to establish and maintain order and to punish evildoers. I think the preamble to our Constitution says something like to establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility. That's sort of the the idea, that it has two things. One, it establishes order and it punishes evildoers. Now now here's where, after you leave that, that's where people begin to disagree. Because some of the prophets say, no, the purpose is to establish justice. But those same prophets, Micah, for example, also says that you ought to be tithing 10%. So if you're going to argue that the, the, the same passage, almost, that where it says that you should be establishing justice as government, it also says that you should be giving. So the easiest way to do it is the plain reading is to stick with what we know simply. What we know is the purpose of government is to establish uh, domestic order and to punish evildoers. Everything after that is gravy. And and how are we supposed to respond to the government? Well, at least two ways we read in the New Testament. We read in the book of 1 Timothy that we are supposed to pray for the government and pray for our leaders, to pray for the king. Now, mind you, you are to pray for for those who lead us regardless, without regard to whether or not you agree with them, whether or not you think they're right or they're wrong. In fact, maybe especially if you think they're wrong. You pray for them, right? This First Timothy 2.1 says, pray for those in authority that we may live quiet lives. Peter tells us something that's even a little bit more difficult. See, Paul tells Timothy you are to pray for your leaders. Peter, on the other hand, says that you ought to submit to every governing authority. Do you submit to only the governing authorities that you like? Do you submit to, if you're a Democrat, do you submit to a Republican governing authority? If you're Republicans, do you submit to, to Democratic governing authorities? Peter doesn't really give you the option. He says you are to submit, if you're a Christian at least, to all governing authorities. 
He doesn't ask you whether you agree with them or not. And we're going to look at today, there are times when you are supposed to disagree with government, but even then you do so realizing that there will be consequences to, to disagreeing with it. There will be consequences to, to bucking the government. And the question is, will you, how do you make that decision? But at the end of the day, government is not inherently bad on one hand. On the other hand, the most dangerous tool of the dragon and is the beast, which is government gone wild. Which you think about the tension we have here is that the reason we have government is because human beings are sinful. We're sinful, and therefore we, God has given us, as a gracious gift, governments to keep us from constantly killing each other, from stealing, from all these things. So it's a gracious gift of God. The problem is, is that those same governments are composed of sinners, and they have a tendency to, to, to become oppressive, especially for Christians. If, you, if you're an American and you grew up in the United States and you haven't thought much about it, that might not make much sense to you. But if you look throughout the history of the world... That's actually more the rule than the exception. An oppressive government. Almost all of them tend that way. Some of them more than others. Some of them much, much more than others. And so you define the beast as sort of government gone wild. Then how do you describe him? Notice what he does. Verse 3 says, one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and the mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, and he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So what are the first thing we notice about the beast? You see, you have to ask yourself the question. Again, it gets into how you're going to interpret the book of Revelation. Some say, well, this is the Antichrist who was wounded in the head and he comes back alive and people are so surprised that they worship him. Well, if you read it closely, it says he was wounded in one of his heads. And so it's probably a mistake to make this out to be, ten, you know, to, to equate ten heads with ten kingdoms. Or It's symbolic. In fact, what you've got going on here in the book of Revelation, in some sense, is almost like a political cartoon. But what you see as you go through, especially chapter 13, is that what the dragon does and the beast does and the second beast does is counterfeit the work of God. In other words, in the Christian tradition, we have a, a holy trinity, correct? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what you see the dragon do is counterfeit that and mock that. So instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have dragon, beast, and false prophet. They, all, they fulfill very similar roles, right? The dragon is one who gives authority to the beast. The father is one who gives authority to the son. The son delivers people that they might worship the father. The beast delivers people that they might worship the dragon. The son delivers people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people group. The dragon, the, the beast, delivers people to the dragon from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. So he's a, but he, he's a counterfeit. But he's also very powerful and he's very persuasive. Notice how persuasive he is. It says that one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound. The whole earth marveled as he rose up from the dead. They marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they said, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? They were worshipping and marveling at the beast. And if you don't think that this could happen with a government rather than just a person... Just today when you get home, go on YouTube and look up old file footage of Nazi Germany. 
Look up old file footage of Italy. Look up old file footage of communist China where you see thousands of people worshipping the government, literally singing hymns to the great leader. That's happened in recent times as well. And whenever that happens, you ought to be nervous. Why? You see, the bad news is this, is that the government it can be so persuasive that people will want to worship it. The government can be so persuasive that people look to it to meet every one of their needs. The good news is, is that people recognize they have a need. People recognize they need to be taken care of. They need to be protected. They need someone to worship. And so in that place is where I think Christians are able to stand and give witness. In other words, when we see people worshiping the beast, if nothing else, it tells us that they have that desire in their heart. Now, here's the problem. Why do people worship the beast? There's a number of reasons. Either because they think that, that he's great and glorious. There's one who's greater and one who's more glorious. The real son, Jesus. They think that he can provide every need for them. or he, Maybe he promises to provide every need. That's what most totalitarian governments do. Most oppressive governments start out by saying that they will take care of you. Or they will protect you. And let me tell you this today. If you, maybe you're here and you're, you're conservative, right? Remember, this is where I start to offend everybody. And you look and you say, man, if we could only have the right president and we had the right economic plan, then we would be in good shape. If we had the right president, we'd be a lot safer. If you're looking for a man or the government to make you safe and secure and prosperous, then you ultimately are going to be disappointed. I promise you. I promise you. Maybe you're at the other end of the continuum and you say, you know, the government, as long as they take care of me and give me everything I need, they have all of my allegiance. Guess what? Eventually the government is going to fail you as well. There's only one person who, when they make the promise, I will never fail you or forsake you, keeps it. His name is Jesus. There's only one person who says, I will always, always, always protect you. Nothing can ever snatch you out of my hand. And his name is Jesus. There's only one person who says, I will supply everything you need. I will never fail you or forsake you. And his name, guess what? is Jesus. If you look to anyone else, any other person, any other government, any other leader, any other president to provide those things for you, you will be disappointed. I mean, ask yourself, that's what drives me so crazy about the political system. If you honestly were sitting down and you looked and listened to any politician promise you anything, do you really believe that? Honestly? I'm, I'm going to break some news to some of you guys today. Most politicians are liars. They really don't care about you. You know, remember how the, the dragon was described? That father of lies, that deceiver, he doesn't care about you either. What we see here in Revelation chapter 13 is what, it's just this, this, this great melding of what, what Satan desires to do and what the government is able to promise, or at least what the government is willing to promise. You don't need to trust Jesus. You don't need to trust God. You don't need to follow the true God because we will give you everything you need. Trust us. Trust us. 
What, is, what are some implications of what we learned so far in, in this chapter 13 about the government? And by the member, I, I want to give the caveat. There is a purpose for government until it goes bad. What are the, some implications? Well, let me finish what I was saying here. For, first of all, in verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. If you remember, 42 months was simply symbolic for the time between Jesus' ascension until the time he comes back. There's good news and there's bad news. The, good, the bad news is that the beast will always be nipping at your heels, if not completely trying to crush you. In other words, the government will always be there, potentially in a bad place for you. Also, you see that the beast is a blasphemer. What's a blasphemer do? A blasphemer is a person who puts himself in the place of God. And so if I'm right here, throughout the Old Testament, if the beast is the government, when, when the government gets to a place where it promises to be God for you, when it promises that it will provide everything that you need, when it promises that I am your only hope and comfort in life and in death, the government is then blaspheming. That's what the beast is. And then finally, it's allowed to make war against the saints. And you should take comfort in that. The beast, the dragon, they don't do anything outside of the providence of God. In other words, God, they're only allowed to do what God allows them. They're only allowed as much leash as he's willing to give them. And so what are the implications now? The first thing is this. Is when you look at Revelation 13, what we all should have is a healthy suspicion of the government. I'm not saying you need to be like me sitting in your basement with a tinfoil hat. But when someone promises you that if you elect them, the, 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 the oceans will cease to rise and the planet will stop to cool, if you honestly believe that, you might want to rethink it. That whenever the government promises you something, whenever a politician promises you something, from any party, by the way, you should at least have a little bit of skepticism, a little bit of cynicism. It would be great if they could provide that. But if they don't, what is my only hope and comfort in life and in death? It's Jesus. It would be great if my candidate won, but if he doesn't, what is my only hope and comfort in life and in death? It's Jesus. If the other candidate wins, is it the end of the world? Honestly, for a lot of Christians, I think it will be. At least from the way they act. It's amazing that you can't even have a conversation with people. You know that politics has become more important to you than Jesus when it begins to break relationships. I had a political discussion a week or two ago with somebody, and within a half hour I was called a racist, pro-rape, pro-Jim Crow, and anti-woman. That was one person. He was a pastor. You can't discuss these things if they are an idol to you. And they won't be idols to you if you're a little bit suspicious. You're willing to, to suspend belief for a little bit. You do it when you watch Lord of the Rings and Finding Nemo. You should do it when you listen to politicians. What's the next thing we learned? That you should have a light but serious allegiance to political institutions. In other words, if you're a Christian, you should be involved at some level in politics. Don't hear me say that you should be you know, living out in the woods and not being involved. You should be completely involved. And honestly, if you think the Democratic platform is the, the best available platform for our country at this time, and you're a Christian, you should get behind that, and you should, 
you should sell it. And if you're a Republican, if you think their, their platform is the best platform, you should get behind it and be involved and you should sell it. But you should remember the whole time that the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is not your only hope and comfort in life and in death. Jesus is. If your party doesn't win, are you going to, to be okay? Honestly, you will be. At least that's what Jesus promises if you trust him. Finally, what, what's the last thing? You've got to beware of nationalism. Right? That's hard for me to say. Some, many of you have been to my office. If you came to my office and walked away and someone said, how would you describe Tommy Allen's office? It would not be surprising for someone to say it was like a shrine to the U.S. Army Rangers. It's like a museum of badness. Red, white, and blue. O.D. Green. Black Berets. That's important to me. But you know what? It is what it is. It's not where my primary citizenship resides. You see, your primary citizenship, at least if you're a Christian, is in heaven. Remember in the, in the book of Hebrews that, that all the saints, they're, they're going toward a city whose builder and maker is God. That they're walking through. You may happen to, in this time, in this place, in the providence of God, be passing through the United States of America, but you're passing through en route to the place where you actually live, where you actually reside. Now, I have to say a word here. What's, what I do think is, you know, you, you hear people argue about, oh, American exceptionalism. Is that true or is it not true? And the answer is, yes. It's true and it's not true. In some sense, Americans, as people, were no different than anyone else and, and that we're sinners, desperately in need of a Savior. That our need is transnational. Our, our need is transracial. Our need is, is, is trans-everything because our need is completely and utterly the same. If you are a sinner and you are separated from God and you have not trusted Jesus, then your lot is to be with the dragon and the beast, not just now, but forever. That's a, that, that's a transnational need. On the other hand, you have to appreciate what makes the United States different, I think. I was thinking about it this week. What makes it different than all of the societies that had come before it? Is that for some reason, when they founded the country, they, it seems like they were taking some of this, this into mind. That they put in all these checks and balances. And what, it, what the thought came to me this week is... Think about how corrupt government is right now, if we're honest. If you don't think government is sort of generally corrupt, just look up on, on the Google, look up like a list of lobbyists that have visited the White House, Congress, or the Senate in the past week. How corrupt would it be if there weren't checks and balances? How corrupt would it be if there weren't term limits for, for politicians, if there weren't term limits for presidents? It could get really bad. So do we have a good thing going here? We do. But do we use it as a platform to do what the rest of the book of Revelation says, that's to bear witness to the gospel, or do we use it to just make sure that we're more and more and more and more secure? Because as long as we're secure, then everyone else is following our wake. And there's a sense in which that's true. On the other hand, there's a sense in which that's absolutely not true. So those are implications so far. The last thing we'll talk about is how do you survive? How do you survive the beast? The first thing you were called the courage. Look at verse 9. 
John says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So what John is telling the the original audience of this book, remember it was seven churches that lived in Asia Minor. He says, if anyone who has ears, let him hear. The book was to be read to those churches. And so he is saying to them and ultimately to us, if anyone has ears, let him hear. Among other things, he's saying that all that stuff about the beast, he expects them to be applying right now. Same with us. And what is he basically saying in a nutshell? I'm running out of time. He's basically saying this, that sometimes you have to to disobey the government when the government has gone wild. But when, when and if you do that, there will be consequences. Notice what he says. He says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, to the sword, he must be slain. In other words, he's saying that, that on earth right now, there will probably be consequences if you buck a government that is tending toward totalitarianism or, or tending towards being oppressive. And he says it calls for endurance and it calls for the faith of the saints. Now the question is, in what are the saints supposed to have faith? And that's what he's just told them in verse 8. Notice in verse 8, he says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the beast. And then he says, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. What assurance does the church have that they're going to be okay if, the, A, if the government goes wild, and B, if they buck a wild government? And the answer is this, it's not in anything that they have done. Notice he doesn't say, as long as you're good Christians, you're going to be okay. As long as you're moral, you're going to be okay. As long as as you're, you're righteous and good people and honest, you're going to be okay. He doesn't give any promise like that at all. There have been times in the history and there will probably undoubtedly be times in the future when the government, either this one or other governments, are completely out of control and the promise for Christians is never that you're going to completely escape and it's going to be okay. But what your assurance is, is this. That before the foundation of the world, your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb that was slain. In other words, it can't be anything that you did that earned you that that place of honor because it was done before the foundation of the world. That your hope and comfort is in God's initiative. That before the foundation of the world, Jesus is called the Lamb who was slain. That the plan all along was that you would be safe and secure ultimately in the bosom of the Father. And if you are certain of that, that you are certain no matter what happens, that ultimately I'm going to be fine because of the person and work of Jesus. That enables you not only to bear witness to the gospel, but it enables you to buck whatever hard system you need to buck. And the question is, will you? You see, what we learn over and over again in the book of Revelation is there's absolutely no way for a Christian to lose if they're willing to trust Jesus. You trust Jesus and he delivers you. You praise him. You trust Jesus and you die. You still praise Him. Because when the saints are killed, we see in the book of Revelation, that it ends up all, all being just another loss for the, for the evil one. That the saints go to heaven and they rejoice. Wouldn't you rather be in heaven than be here? I certainly would, rather than watching CNN or something. I'll tell you that. And yet, we don't. We tend to be just very passive and we tend to just sit here. We neither witness nor do we buck We neither rejoice nor do we question. And the question is, will you? 
knowing that Jesus has, has had you in his hands since before the foundation of the world, what is it going to lead you to do? And if, you know, my favorite example of all time is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer became a pastor right as Hitler was coming into power. And he was really worried. In fact, he was in the middle of preaching against, he was preaching a, a sermon very similar to this one, to be honest with you. And the radio was cut off in the middle of his sermon. One of my claims of fame is I almost got arrested because I crossed the, behind the, the rope lines to touch that pulpit. It's not a good idea. He's eventually arrested. And he was arrested not just for his preaching, because he was arrested because his brother-in-law was part of a group that basically was plotting to, to kill Hitler. And even in, in Bonhoeffer's own writings, it sounds like this. That basically he says, I realize that I'm making a decision to help, instead of just helping people who've been crushed under the wheels of government, I'm making a decision as a pastor to shove a stick in the spokes of the wheel of government. And because of that, I will have to bear the consequences, I and I only. And he does bear the consequences. He's arrested. And eventually at Flossenburg prison camp, he is executed. And he sends a message to his friend, Bishop Belt, and he says to him, you tell him this, that, that this is the end, but for me, this is the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer got it. Even the consequences are not that bad when you consider the reward, which is to be with Jesus. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would give us uh, uh, wisdom. I pray that you would give us uh, skeptical spirits where we need to be skeptical. I pray that you give us faith where we need to have faith. But I ultimately pray that we would put our faith not in government, not whether it's, it's, it's left or right or, or center, but that we, our faith would be in Jesus. That our faith would be not in a president and not in a senator and not in a mayor, but our faith would be actually in a king. A king who came and conquered the world and is still conquering the world, Jesus himself. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.